welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hey, Susan. Hello. Uh, we are doing a continuation of our last uh, of our last topic, which was uh, well. I guess I'll, I'll let you introduce it. But as uh, for those of you who may or may not know, we're sort of doing a series. Uh, do you want to call it a, a lecture series? Is that sort of fair? Is that sure. Th- yeah, so sure. we'll, we'll 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 dub this the quote like the lecture, lecture series. I like lecturing people. And, uh, that sounds very serious. <laughs> you I'm are lecture you. you are very professory. Uh, yeah. yeah, you know, when I was um, seven years old, <laughs> just a few years ago, mm-hmm. uh, one of the games I used to play was I. I had a lot of dolls. And I played two games with the dolls. One was I lined them up and bandaged them and played doctor and did surgery on them. and all of, I didn't do real surgery on them, but pretended I was doing surgery on them. And the other game I played was I put them in rows and I, I played teacher. And I was the teacher and they were the students. So I knew I was going to do one of the two things. I was either going to be a doctor or I was going to teach. And I kind of did both because I do have a PhD, so you can call me doctor and I teach. Okay, that was a little aside. I'm sorry. Doctor. It's been a long week. I'll try and yeah. stay on task. Okay, so um, we, we're, doing, we're doing a lecture series. Uh, uh, we had debated calling it part this, part that. We're not going to do that because it doesn't really, doesn't really work like that. It's not split up into parts. This is just a continuation of where we left off. Um, for those of you listening on the podcast, that will be last week. Uh, for those of you sort of listening elsewhere, it'll be last session, however, however you want to call it. So, um, do you want to? Can you give just a little two-minute summary? Yeah, absolutely. Of last session. Of last session, and then what we're going to do in this session? Yes. So last session. Um, so the topic in general is collaboration, and um, last session we talked about some of the research about um, psychology research. You know, how how is it that we solve problems and be creative? And uh, then the the we also talked about uh, how we might, uh, you know, what do we know about how people communicate? And we also talked about what we know about how people listen or whether they listen. And so I was. I went over those three topics because I think those are kind of foundational to then understanding different how we might want to change when we collaborate. You know, when we do, and we were talking about all this Guthrie in the context of doing design research and you know meeting with users and meeting with stakeholders and so on. So, so much of what we do in design work and in design research work is work with other people. Like sometimes we're off on our own doing things for sure, but a lot of times we're, we're interviewing or discussing or coming up with ideas with other people. So the more we can be smart about how we collaborate and, and use what we know about humans to collaborate better, I think that's a great thing. I also think it just makes everything more fun and interesting. I think it's really easy to fall into a rut and think, oh, I'm going to go do some research or I'm going to go interview my stakeholders. So I'm just going to come up with a bunch of questions and then set up a one-hour Teams meeting and ask them the questions and then summarize what they said. And there's nothing wrong with that. I do a lot of that. But there's other things you can do to make collaboration more powerful. So last time we talked about kind of the foundational part, and this time, Guthrie, we're going to talk about, uh, and at the end of the last session, I gave we gave one example of a little technique to use during collaboration, and that's what we're going to do in this one. I'm going to talk about some of our favorite collaboration techniques that, that we teach workshops on and such, and use. Okay. okay. All right. Well, uh, where 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 would you like to start? Well, I want to I want to mention again. You know, last time um, I I held up uh, for those of you who are watching this, not just listening to it, but I held up a book. And for those of you who are listening, I'll tell you about the book. 
It's called Game Storming by Dave Gray. And a lot of the ideas that we're going to talk about in this session come from Dave's book. So I don't want to imply that I invented all of these things. Um, I've used all of them. Some of them. We haven't used. I don't. There are so many in that book. Oh, yeah. No, no. I did not. Sorry, (laughs) sorry, sorry. I did not want to imply I used everything in this book. Although I've used a lot, but no, no, yeah. no. I didn't mean to imply that. I meant the ones that we're going to talk about. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, yes. You know, because yes. cause the ones we're going to talk about today are definitely a small We have subset. used them personally. Yes, yes. And, and you're right. There's much more in this book than I'm even going to talk about today. So get the book because it's great. All right. So um, I'm picking and choosing uh, some, of my, some of my favorites. Um, and, and I think it is important to understand that, you know, what techniques you might want to try out do depend on what you're doing with the group and what you're trying to do. So, and, and I usually mention the context. So the first one that I want to talk about is the one um, that's called the anti-problem. So, you know, most of the time when we're trying to problem solve, right, how, oh, we have this problem, how can we fix it, how can we change it, what should we do differently? And, you know, then you have brainstorming sessions or whatever it is that you're doing. Usually you are focusing on the problem, right? It's like, here's the problem, how do we solve it? And it's a good good technique to use, but sometimes if you are trying to engage the creative parts of the brain, sometimes it can help to turn that around. And instead of trying to solve the problem, you actually try and solve the opposite of the problem. I first uh, got experienced this, I think it was in uh, 2012. Um, Guthrie, I was at um, a wonderful conference uh, called UXLX, and I'm sure that stands for something, but I don't remember what. Um, probably the L is probably Lisbon. Uh, I, no, I was going to say a llama xylophone. No, come on. This is a UX conference in Lisbon, Portugal. Uh, happens every year, and if you haven't been there and you'd like to go to Portugal, I highly recommend you checking out this conference. The year I was a speaker there was the first year of the conference. And it was so great. And I met so many wonderful, uh, the other speakers there uh, have become, uh, you know, friends for years because uh, Bruno, who runs that conference, does a great job at really getting the speakers to have time together and so on. So highly recommend that conference. At that conference, I was sitting in on all the other talks and there was a talk by Donna Spencer, who's a pretty pretty well-known UX person, I think based out of Australia. And her specialty is card sorting and so on. But she did a session where she had us do this anti-problem. That was the first time I ever used it. And I thought it was just great. So here's what it is. Um, the anti-problem, um, it's, it's a, a method of brainstorming. It works from, you know, anywhere around, you know, five people. And you can have more than that, but if you have a lot of people, you should break them up into groups of like four or five. So what you do is you decide on the situation or problem that you want to solve. And you have ready, you know, paper and pens and sticky notes. Or if you're doing this remotely, you can have like a mural board or a mural board. And you write down the statement that is the opposite of the problem you're trying to solve. So, for example, let's say that what what you're trying to solve is you want to figure out how to speed up um, the training process for your customers who are learning how to use, you know, your product. You make this product, and it's kind of a complicated B2B product, and you have training programs for people to learn, but it kind of takes a long time to get them through the training, and you're, you're wondering, is there a way to speed up the training process without wrecking the quality of the training? But instead of solving that problem, you state the problem in the opposite. So you would say, how can we make the training process as slow and difficult as possible? Now, how does that sound to you, Katri? Is that a good question to ask? Or does that make you like 
crazy because we would actually. Well, I was assuming that the obvious number one answer would just have me teach it. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) that's good. Anyway, so what you do is um, you give each group, you know, a certain amount of time, like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and each group, or there might just be one group if there's just five of you, you you brainstorm and write down on your paper or your your mirror board uh, all the ideas you can come up with of how to solve the ante problem, which in this case, as I said, is how can we make the training process as slow and difficult as possible? So you do that, and then when time is up, you know everybody's got their ideas, and if you have more than one group, you share the solution among the groups. And then once you've done that, now you back up and you go through a a brainstorming process again. But in this case, it's how do we take some of these ideas that people came up with about how to make the training slower and less effective and we see, is there anything there that we can turn around and then become a good solution? And um, it's... It's a strange. It's a strange way to collaborate in a way, but it actually works really well. And part of what is happening when you do this is, um, it's it's freeing up that imagination network that we talked about in our last session to be creative and to to think up possibly new ideas and new ways of looking at the problem. So then, when you go to turn it around. There's some new ideas there. The other thing it does is it gives a little bit of time, right? Rather than just asking the question, you know, how can we make the training uh, fast and easy? And then trying to answer that right away. By first answering this question, there's a little bit of time for the brain to start working on, oh, we're talking about training and what makes it slow and what makes it difficult, you know. So um, that's the anti-problem technique. It's really, you know, it's quick and easy, right, uh, to do. It doesn't take a lot of preparation or, or anything. So you have any comments on that, Guthrie? Or have you ever done the, the anti-problem? Yes, I certainly have. I don't think I've... Um, how do I explain this? I haven't worked with or in large, kludgy organizations as often as perhaps you have. I don't know. You've worked on a lot of projects with me that we're not going to name names. Um, well, but I... Uh, okay, I'll put it this way. Where I haven't led... You haven't uh, led or led facilitated... Sessions, facilitated as many. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I have certainly used it. Yeah. Um, but it has been much more in sort Not of in an informal, yeah. uh, like like uh, brainstorming. I yeah, mean, I've used yeah. it for brainstorming, but it's yeah. more sort of my uh, my my own your own kind things. of way. You know, because uh, you know, I did. Situation. And this is very common. Uh, if in actually, um, the lawyers use this all the time. Ah, so so okay. if you are uh, oh, want to, for example, uh, give me any sort of position. That I'm trying to argue, it's funny or legal thing, or silly, or I have no idea. I would never. Well, okay, you're terrible with that example. Fine, (laughs) Uh, but but if you're if you're ever trying to, you know, uh, argue, there there are like three different ways that they use this. The first is oftentimes you will have um, so like when I was in law school, you have you know mock trial or something, and one of the ways you prep. For is, to, trial. is to argue the argue, opposite. Argue the opposite oh, because the other side beautiful. is going to do that. Right, so you need right. to be just as familiar with their yes, arguments as your yes. own. So it's actually very, very common in law to, to do uh, that. To, oh, to, to do these see, sorts of exercises. I never even thought about that. That's fascinating. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is kind of that. All right, I like that. Thanks for that example. Uh, the same, and the same also happens in uh, policy. So, if you're crafting mm-hmm. government legislation of or policy of some sort of sort right. in your think tank, uh, and you know, as an econ major, so what you know, if we wanted to completely destabilize the 
whatever you know the regulatory apparatus you yeah know, yeah yeah what would you how do would you and do that? that's how right, you sort of right and then you think go about do all the right opposite. let's 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 see now i, I see uh, so i think that's really interesting because as you say this about the legal situation or regulatory policy you know it's like i can see right away how that would be useful and probably how they they already do that and then but i think that so it's kind of interesting to me that maybe in a more and maybe it's just my own experience. I, I find in a lot of corporate environments, a lot of UX work, a lot of design research work, or UX design problem solving work, this is not used. Like like to do it this way, when I suggest it uh, with with business people or UX people, you know, their eyes kind of get wide and their eyebrows go up and they go, "We're going to do what?" <laughs> so I think that maybe it's a, it's a known technique in some fields and not as well known in others. That's interesting. Okay, you want another one? It's your it's your lecture. You do whatever you want. <laughs> All right, now we're going to do another one, and we'll uh, we'll see if you know this one. I I think you might know this one. So um, this is this one is called the hundred dollar test. So sometimes. Um, what we want people to do is prioritize things. And I know in, in you know, a fair amount of research that, um, that I do, uh, I'll often use, for instance, if I'm interviewing uh, users, um, and I have perhaps a list of features, a list of tasks that they do or features that we're thinking about putting in the product or whatever it is. We have a list of things and we're trying to get their feedback on which ones are most important to them. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways you can do this. You can ask them which one is the most important to you. Uh, you can ask them to rate each one, uh, you know, on a scale of one to five, where five is it's very important and one is it's not very important. And th 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 those all work. Um, to some extent. But if what you want to do is really force them to rank them, if you really want a forcing of which one is really their most important one, which one is next, and how much more important is, you know, idea number two from idea number five to them, or feature number two versus feature number five, then you want to do what's called a forced ranking. You don't want them to just say, because there's a tendency to rate everything as a four out of five or a three out of five, and maybe one thing is a one. Um, but this way you're really forcing them to make those comparisons. So here's how this one works. It's called the $100 test. And what you do is you have a list of all the things you want the person to prioritize. Um, and it works best if you have, you know, like somewhere between five and 10 things to prioritize. Doesn't This one doesn't work quite as well if you have like two things or if you have 25 things, you know, it's got to be kind of in that range. So you put all these things that you want them to prioritize, you know, in a list on a piece of paper or in a mirror board or something like that. And you explain to them, they have essentially $100 to spend buying these different features or ideas. And they have to allocate the $100 amongst all the ideas. So if, you know, there's a list of five, five features and they only care about one of them, they'd put $100 on that one and zero on everything else, you know. Or if there were two that were equally important, they'd put $50 on one and $50 on the other and zero on the other. So they can allocate the $100 any way they want with the more money showing that that's a higher priority. All the, all the money for each feature or item on the list, you know, it has to add up to $100. Uh, and you can also, you know, either have them write down or ask them once they have, uh, put the money amounts down for each idea. You know, why, why did you give that one? Why did you say $50 for that one and $5 for this one over here? I mean, you can have a discussion about it afterwards. So um, that is the $100 test or technique. Uh, I got three of you to use that one. 
Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is a this is an econ thing. And you're an economist, so, yeah. so yeah, that makes ranking, sense. Ranking, do, doing more advanced systems of uh, rankings, and uh, uh, it's 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 a sort of a value solicitation game. Yeah, yeah, is functionally what it is. And you know what's also interesting with this? Yeah, because you you know, and you can analyze the data. You know, just as if you had asked them to rate from one to five, right? And then you did this with twenty people. Right, you could find out, you know, the average rating for each item. Well, you can do the same thing here. Only that, what you're going to come up with is the average dollar amount for each item, and then you can also look at the range. Right, so we had, you know, the average for for uh, feature number one was thirty five dollars, but the range was from you know one dollar to a hundred dollars. So there's a lot of variability people are answering. Uh, or you can um, you can also you know analyze it according to different audiences, right? So uh, one of the things I like to do when I'm doing research is have the stakeholders do something like this: the you know people inside the company that are designing, developing the product, and see how they rate it, and then ask the actual customers or users their rating and see if they match. And very often they don't. So the things that that the people in on the team and inside the organization thought were the most important things to have don't fit what everybody else said. Uh, so, and you can also use this technique not just for, you know, ranking features or you could, um, you know, let's say you had, you know, five ideas about how to solve a problem. Uh, five ideas how to make that training <laughs> more quick and efficient. Uh, you know, you could rank the five ideas this way by saying um, how much money are each of these ideas worth. All right, so that's the $100 test. I'm going to keep going with these ideas, Guthrie, if that's okay with you. Right. Uh, yeah, you just you just keep going. You do whatever you want. I know. It's my session. It's your session. All right. I want to talk about, um, this is one of my favorite ones that I have used a lot. And Guthrie, I know you've participated in this one because you've you've been on sessions where we've done this. You've helped me teach it, and that's something called brain writing. And uh, I really love this technique. And and this goes along with the things we talked on about last session when we were talking about uh, you know giving giving the brain time to work on a problem. So. It's very similar to brainstorming, right? The typical kind of brainstorming you do, but it has a few twists on it that make it much more effective. And I can say anytime I've taught this to a group and they've tried it out, I think almost everyone goes, oh my gosh, this is so much better than regular brainstorming. So um, let me describe it to you. Uh, this You can do this with, you know, typically four or five people. I've done it with like mm, up to seven or eight, but that it, it gets a little crazy and you'll see why um, uh, as I describe it. So if you have, you know, like I would say if you have more than, if you have seven or more people, I'd probably break them into two groups. So you can have multiple groups doing this. Um, but let's say you have four to five people per groups per group. And so what this is, the context of it is it's just a more effective method of brainstorming. And it combines, you'll see, individual reflection with group collaboration. So um, to get ready to do this, you have to decide what's the topic where we're going to brainstorm on. Uh, And if you're working in person, you're going to want to have post-it notes and something to write with and a a large wall or a large table uh, to to post the post-it notes. Um, If you're doing this remotely, then you're just going to want like a big mural board or mural board, and you want to set it up ahead of time the way I'm going to describe. So what you do is you state the problem, and you write down the problem where everyone can see it. Now, based on what we talked about last time about creativity, I'm going to suggest that you state that problem and maybe give a little, you know, a little introduction about why you want to talk about it at a pre-meeting, 
I'm going to suggest that you have a 10, 15 minute session where you get everybody together that's going to be in the brain writing session. And you say, Hey, you know, next Thursday, we're getting together. We're going to do this technique called brain writing. And because we're going to focus on this issue. Um, and because that will set, that will set the, ex- the executive attention network and that will allow the imagination network to already be running simulations and scenarios before you do the session. So that would be ideal to give some time. If you can't give a couple of days, maybe you can at least give a couple of minutes. Maybe you can get everybody together and say, here's the problem we're going to be working on. Now go get your something to drink and, you know, just relax, network together for a few minutes, and then we'll get started. Always wanting to give time for the imagination network to start working. All right. So now when we're ready, we have our question of what we're going to solve. And just to make life easy for me, I'm going to go back. Let's say we're working on the question, how can we make training (laughs) uh, easier and faster? All right. I'm just doing that because we've already talked about it. So what we do, instead of doing a regular brainstorm, you know, in a regular brainstorm, You'd have a big piece of flip chart paper, you'd have your mirror board, and people would start coming up with ideas and you'd write them down. And or or maybe you'd have a maybe you'd even have people just think about the question and write down their ideas separately and then share, right? So that's a typical brainstorm. But in brain writing, it's a little bit different. So you've you have the question, which in our case is about training, and everybody works on it on their own. So each person individually writes down their ideas for solutions on a post-it note. They write down one idea per post-it note. So I might write down, um, uh, you know, do, do sell, create self-paced training instead of the in, only having in-person training or something like that. So you write your one idea down on a post-it note. As soon as I write my idea down, I take that post-it note and I hand it to the person that's to my right. And I'm going to explain how you do this in a mirror board in a second. But if we're in person, I'm handing the post-it note to the person to to my right. And then I think about it some more and I write down another idea on a post-it note. And I hand that post-it note also to the person to the right. And I just keep, you know, I've got the, maybe we've, we've said everybody do this for 10 minutes or something. And so I just keep coming up with ideas and writing them down in a post-it note and giving it to the person to the right. Now, the person to the right of me is doing the same thing and they're giving it to the person to their right. Uh, and, you know, hopefully we're, we're sitting in a circle. So everybody's writing down ideas and passing it to the person next to them. And eventually, uh, well, as you, so as I'm sitting there writing down my ideas, the person on my left is handing me their ideas And then they're handing me the ideas that have gone all the way around the room. And so I'm constantly getting other people's ideas as well as me thinking about ideas. So when I get another person's idea, I look at it, I think about it. Maybe it makes me think about something new, a new idea. I could write, make a note on their post-it note, or I just create another post-it note. But I'll take any post-it notes that are coming from the person on my left. I'll read it. And then I'll pass that to the person on my right. So all the post-it notes are going around the room. And then when your own post-it note comes back to you, you don't pass it again to the person on the right. You then hand it to the facilitator who's going to put it on the big whiteboard or the big table. So you just do this until, you know, all the post-it notes have gone around. Or usually what you do is you just do it until you, you call time. And what you're going to have is a ton of, you know, ideas and post-it notes. And then what you can do is, you know, you can go through the post-it notes. You can uh, uh, group them. You can do all kinds of things once you've got it all down. So, And then as a group, you can work on them and talk about them. So you've got a combination of the group collaboration and group ideas, but you also have the advantage of, you know, individual ideas and individual reflection. Um, and typically what I find and what people say about this technique is that the ideas are better, uh, that there's more of them. And that is just 
easier to do. I think there's something kind of intimidating about, okay, come up with an idea and then you're supposed to say it and then someone writes it down and then, you know, people aren't supposed to judge it right away in a brainstorming, but they kind of do anyway. And people go off on tangents. And so this way it stays focused. Everybody can come up with ideas, but you can still discuss them later. Now, if you're going to do this on a mirror board, you know, you're not sitting there, you can't pass a post-it note, but what you do is you put sticky notes on the board and you just, you know, so you write your idea on a sticky note and then you just move that sticky note to the next person's area on the board. So instead of handing them the post-it note, and then when it comes back around to you, when you get your own back, instead of giving it to the facilitator, you just move it to a big area of the mirror board for, you know, when the post-it note has made it all the way through everyone, it goes here. So same, same idea. Catherine, any comments or questions about that one? I know you've, you've participated in Yeah, I've done, I've done that, that a, a number of times. What do you think about it compared to regular brainstorming? Of course, if you say you hate it and you like regular brainstorming, then, then we're going to have to quickly move on to another topic. I, uh, but, I no, cannot really, comment can be because I've only done it remotely. You've only done it on the so, mirror board. So it's it's a little apples and oranges, right? Because I'm comparing it to being in a room brainstorming yeah, yeah, with yeah, other yeah. people. And that's not, that's that's not, that's not fair the, to it. No, that's not a fair no. comparison. Um, I will say that uh, one thing I've noticed about some of the, the exercises in here, especially the brainstorming ones, is that they, they don't tend to... Um, you generally get better results, but it's not consistent. So it's not like doing this, every single person will have 20% more better ideas than if you did a different thing. I find that like for this one in particular, there are some people who maybe who, who, who's, who I, their, their ideas in terms of quantity and quality, like double using this, like they, this yeah, just yeah, really yeah. unlocks some people, especially if they wouldn't have normally spoken up or if they get tunnel vision. And so they see someone's idea and then they just, you know, they think about that and they don't think about their own stuff. Like it's really forcing people to come up with their own uh, thoughts and create content in it's, <laughs> it's sort of agile in that capacity. It's it's the it's the agile development of brainstorming sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but so so there are some people who in a in just a right quote regular brainstorm mm-hmm. are just they just crush it and they're lively and there's all kinds of stuff that good stuff that happens. And then if you do this. Um, they actually maybe lose 5% because their ideas are sort of crowded out or they, you know, they, they have a bunch of ideas, but they don't, you know, they only get really excited if they can, if other people are talking about them and yeah, yeah, you know, right. So, so, um, so some people, maybe they, they lose a little bit. And then a lot of people who otherwise, you know, would not have spoken up, they get really into it. And some people are just like typing, 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 or yeah, you know, yeah, just yeah. scribbling like crazy. So um, I, I do think it's a good thing. I think you get better results, but it's not even. It's not It's not the same for everybody. It's not the same for yeah. everyone. Yeah. I wonder too if this is maybe, maybe one reason I like this so much is maybe it's good for introverts. Oh, very good for introverts. Yeah. You know, because it's like. Yep. I come, I definitely come up with more ideas this way, but I think it's because. I can just come up with my own ideas and write them down, and I don't yeah, have to this, say them this, out loud. You know, I didn't. I didn't say that it was for introverts, but you're, it's, I if you're if you say, but, it, I, I mean, I think extroverts do okay with it as well. Of course, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it might be especially good. It's especially good for, for people introverts. who normally would not speak up during a brainstorming session. Yeah, yeah, sure. and That's it's and it's point. and and. It's also very good if you have more than like six people in a room, because you know yes. how it is with brain with when you brains. You know those small. You need if you're coming up with ideas, you need that like three to five, three to six maybe yeah, in a room yeah. to really hit that optimal kind of group think. So yeah. if you got like eight people, nine people, it's too many for a regular brainstorm. But this one, you can all of a sudden you have tons of great ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yep. All right. All right, I'm going to keep going. I got more. The next one I'm going to talk about is actually, I think, a um, 
It is in the book Game Storming, but it's also a popular technique that that has been used in a lot of other situations. So I don't think Dave Gray came up with this idea, um, but he does put it in his book. And uh, it's called The Five Whys. Uh, I think it also might have other names. Sometimes people refer to this as a, a fishbone analysis, um, and I'll explain why that is later. But uh, it's really good when what you're trying to do is get at the root of a problem. And so you can use this with uh, a, in a group situation where you're trying to solve a problem. You can also, however, use this just even one-on-one. You're doing an interview um, with a user or a stakeholder, and um, you, you want to dig into uh, what they're saying and what the real root uh, cause or the real root issue is. And so um, it's good to use when you're not sure what the real issue is, uh, that you're trying to un- make sure you understand before you you know, solve a problem. Let's make sure we're solving the right problem. It's also good, I think, if you're, <laughs> you know, a lot of times when you're doing research, you're not a s- total subject matter expert on the topic and you're trying to understand it. And so, you know, asking questions this way can help. And also, I think that if you, you know, a lot of times we we will be interviewing someone and we'll say, you know, well, what do you think is the the you know, main issue or the main problem uh, that, you know, you have using this product or you have in your work that you'd like to have a product solve that issue. And, and people will answer, but that might not be like the real problem. <laughs> so this is a way of just kind of exploring deeper and finding out what the real problem is or the real idea is that they would like solving rather than just like a, on a surface level. So what you do with this, it's very simple. You just decide on what what is the question, what is the problem you want to solve, or what is the question you want to ask. Um, and you, you, you write it down, and then you start by asking, why is this happening? I'm going to use the same problem. You know, our training is uh, too slow and it's it's not effective. And so then I would say to the person, so wh- why is the training too slow and not effective? And they would answer that question. So you'd write down that answer. And, and it's really useful when you're doing this to write down the question and write down the answers uh, as, as we're gonna go through this in front of the person so they can see you know, here's the question, here's how I answered it, and then here's the next question and so on. So they'll give an answer. So Guthrie, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot. So I'm gonna say that um that you know you've told me that the training is I'm trying to remember how I how did I word that when the first time I worded it. Let's see if I can find it. Cl- uh, clunky? Was it I clunky? did not say clunky. I said uh, no. How how how? Let's see. Why is the training slow and difficult? So you're you're going to have to make this up. So let's say you're somewhere, you're a customer, and you know you've said the training is slow and difficult. In fact, several of our customers have said that. So I'm going to ask you, you know, why? Why is that? Why there's why there's is not enough staff, not enough people to do the training, not enough people to do the training, and then I would write that down, and then I'd say, okay, why why isn't there enough people to do the training? The company's cheap, and they <laughs> don't invest in the in in, uh, in customer support. Okay, uh, and so I'd write that down, and then I'd <laughs> say, why is the company cheap and not investing in customer support? <laughs> And then I get fired, and uh, I have to have to go on unemployment. <laughs> no, that's not part of the question. No, uh, I uh, I don't know. Pro- okay, uh, I'll play along uh, because the 
the corporate priorities are about profit, short-term profit generation instead of long-term uh, growth. Okay, and uh, why is the why why is, are the corporate profits about? I mean, why is the corporate? What did you say? The corporate uh, priorities. Yeah, corporate priorities. Yeah, why are why are they about short-term growth and profit? <laughs> Uh, okay, I'll, I'll keep going along this get more sexist to take because the uh, uh, the uh, institutional shareholders uh, demand constant um, profit margins uh, from their in from their investment, mm -hmm. and and then if you want to do the why uh, further, the uh, CEO and board of directors uh, greatest audience is the institutional shareholders and not either their employees or their customers. Okay. So you do this five <sighs> times. Okay. And, and you know what, uh, it's interesting when you do this because sometimes you do get into a place where you go beyond what I call your sphere of influence. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, if no, like, if, if you gave me one more why, we we get into like capitalism as an institution. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so you know, it's not. Let's see. So, so the five whys mm. may or may not be super practical. Um, it kind of depends on you know who who you're talking to and where they it go. With it would have helped to to start with a more specific problem so you can give yourself yes. a couple layers before you get to the That's super right. General. That's right. So for instance, you know, you might have phrased that question. I might have phrased the question as, you know, why does it take three months to get through the training? Right. And that would be so the framing of the question is really important in this situation. And and if you're gonna do the five whys, I do suggest you pilot it with some people and see if Oh man, we get to the capitalism question really fast, you know, every time. And so we should that we got to rephrase this question because everybody ends up in some crazy place. So it is possible that you go down uh, a rabbit hole and um, uh, end up in a place that you know is not useful. Uh, and and if you do, you do. I mean, obviously, it doesn't take really long to ask the five questions. So you could always go in there and then you could back up if, and realize, okay, I'm going to ask, you know, you could have a couple of different versions of it. And if you feel like it went down a weird rabbit hole, just back up and say, well, let's, you know, you mentioned about how it takes too long. Let's talk about that. Right. Um, but there's also, there's interesting things that, that can come out of this about, um, you know, about the uh, a root cause, which is why people use this technique, but also about um, uh, ways to discuss it, right? It, for instance, if you did, if it did come up that a lot of people said things like, you know, we don't, we don't invest enough in, in training and support, right? Um, it's not, not important to the company. It doesn't seem, you know, they they care more about short term profits. You know, if if that perception, whether it's true or not, came up a lot, you know, that would be uh, that might be interesting for some people to hear. Hey, there's a perception out there that that we only care about short term profits, and maybe the organization is not connecting, not understanding how improving training actually might improve the profits. So it also leads you to kind of think about, you know, other ways to approach the problem or other people to talk to. But that is the, um, the five whys. So do you, uh, have you ever heard that called, uh, the fishbone Guthrie? I've never heard it called the fishbone, but I'm, yeah, I'm not the target audience for fishbone. Okay, so the reason I was going to see if I could explain in words a visual <laughs> of why it's called the fishbone, if you, because sometimes what you can do is, you know, you start with the problem and then the answer to the first question takes you off on a tangent 
And then you can go off of that tangent and you can diagram this out and it kind of looks like a fish skeleton. Um, and then, because the other thing that you can do when you're really doing, if you're doing this in a lot of detail, um, which, which you don't always have to do, but you can end up um, going down a 5Y for any of the one answers. And you can also end up with categories like, okay, let's talk about staffing, right, for the training problem. And now we can go down a, a 5Ys on there. And so you can write that down. So you end up with a diagram that kind of looks like a fish skeleton. That's why it's called the fishbone analysis, because it looks like a bunch of fish bones. But you don't have to do it that way. All right. I think I have time for a couple of more of these. And let's see, which one do I want to talk about next? Which one is my, my next favorite here? I'm looking through my list, Guthrie. Let's do... Oops, sorry, I'm taking so long. I'm not very good at scrolling. Let's do, I want to do a different one, which is uh, called a stakeholder analysis. You know, when we do design research, um, we spend a lot of time thinking about the people we're designing for and the people we want to research, uh, uh, usually meaning the users or customers of the product um, that we're designing or we're thinking of designing. And, um, you know, that's probably a focus of, I don't know, 70 to 80% of the research that, that you might do as a design researcher. But one of the things that's also really important if you're doing design research is to think about how you communicate with and collaborate with your stakeholders. So I'm using that term pretty broadly. Um, <clears throat> you know, what, what is a stakeholder for design research? Who is a stakeholder for design research? And you may have many people who are stakeholders. So typically, you know, somebody uh, has perhaps asked you to do this research, or maybe not. Maybe this research is your idea. But in order to get buy-in or approval or funding for it, there's somebody or a couple of people you have to go talk to that give you the okay to do it. Or even if that's not true, just think about, okay, I had the funding, I had the idea, I went out and interviewed the users, and I now have all the analysis and great results, but you know, what am I, what am I going to do with that? Just like put it in a folder on SharePoint and forget about it. No, I probably want to share it with someone and hope that they will use this information, um, in, in to, to design or to make decisions about products. So, um, you know, sometimes your stakeholders are the people who you want to share the information with. Sometimes your stakeholders are the people that, um, you need to get approval from or the people you need to get funding from from and sometimes it's all of the above right so um when i use the term stakeholder i i really it, it can be any of those things and maybe all of those things so the question is you know who who do you need to get buy-in from for the work and the research that you're doing and buy-in either because they literally have to pay for it or buy-in because you want them to pay attention to what the results are afterwards or both. So that's what I mean by stakeholder. So it it's, and, and Guthrie, you've heard me talk so much about stakeholders <laughs> over the years. And I, I that's because I really can't say enough about how important it is to, um, to really think about stakeholders, to interview your stakeholders, to uh, design your uh, analysis and presentations 
to really speak to your stakeholders. Um, it's if we want the work we do to have impact, we need to really be thinking about stakeholders. And um, I have seen, you know, it, projects. You know, when a project, if you have, I don't know if anyone listening has ever had this situation where a project didn't go well. Uh, it kind of blew up. And any of you listening who are like consultants and work for an agency or something, and and you know you're brought in to do this piece of research, and um, any if if you have a project that didn't go well, uh, usually that has to do with expectations, and usually that has to do with not being clear on who the stakeholder is and what they wanted. And so Guthrie knows a question I ask all the time is who's our main and most important stakeholder? Well, you're a good you're a good consultant, so you know how to ask these questions. Yeah. I'm okay. I'm just saying that's that's why you do it because you're a good consultant. So <laughs> well, you, because you know. I've learned. Yeah. Because I was on because years ago I was on projects that would like blow up and it wouldn't and the customer would be unhappy and I would be like so shocked because we were doing great work. Why is the customer unhappy? Oh, because the the real stakeholder I didn't it w- was this person over here who I never interviewed and I wasn't doing the research they wanted and. I wasn't doing it from their point of view and so on and so on. And I learned that when projects don't go well, it's, you know, a huge reason is because we, we're we not doing the right thing for the right person. We don't know who the stakeholder is or we don't agree. Um, and uh, it's all about expectations. That's what, so that's my tip of the session. Make sure you know what everybody's expecting. All right. So I think the stakeholder analysis is, is important and is kind of a really interesting thing to do. And I like, I like, I like the way I like thinking of it like this. So what you do is you're going to categorize your stakeholders and decide how best to work with them. That's why you're doing this. And you, you can do this with one person, two people, probably like up to five people um, in this collaboration. So what you want to do is you want to make a list of who you think the stakeholders are for this particular project. And, and you know, uh, and the assumption is, by the way, that there's more than one person uh, that is in the stakeholder group. I, it could be one, but typically you have more than one. So maybe you have, you know, okay, the the product owner for the product is a stakeholder, and but then there's the the business line of business person, they're the stakeholder. And then we also have another stake, you know, we have a developer too that's a stakeholder and, you know, maybe a UX designer, whatever it is, you decide here's our list of stakeholders. You put the name of each stakeholder on a post-it note. You can do this in person with real post-it notes. You can do it with a mural board. And then you draw a matrix of two axes. So you have a vertical axis and a horizontal axis. And um, on one axis, I usually do this one. Where do I, I usually do? It doesn't matter, but I usually do the vertical one. is called the power axis, and the horizontal axis is called interest. I call it interest slash availability. So I have two axes. One is power. One is interest and availability, and then. You know, so now I have four quadrants, right? And I take, you know, we take the post-it note with a stakeholder's name and we put it on the matrix. So this particular stakeholder, how interested are they in this project? How available are they like to meet with us and, you know, to be involved and and answer our questions and maybe uh, sit in on some of the interviews? You know, how interested slash available are they? So that's going to move them horizontally. And then how much power do they have relative to the other stakeholders? So are they like the most powerful person in this whole group? You know, we can't, we got to make sure we're making, keeping that person happy. So if they're very powerful, then they move up 
And if they're not very powerful, they move down. So we find a spot on this matrix here of where they are. So let's say, for example, we've decided they're very high power but and, and not that interested or available. So then I'm going to move them all the way up, but pretty far to the left. And then I maybe have another person. Oh, this person, kind of middle on the power, but really interested in the project. Okay, so I'm going to move them halfway up vertically and then all the way to the right. And so we we put our people, you know, on the matrix where they where they fall. All right, now Guthrie, I'm going to, I love putting you on the spot. Now what do we do? Why did we do that and what do we do after that? <coughs> we, we cough and take a drink of water. Okay, and then what would we do? So we now um, have, let's say, you know, five stakeholders, and we've got them mapped according to power and interest and availability. Uh, well, we, I mean, sort of like Highlander, right? There can only be one. Highlander? What's Highlander? Oh, my God. It's a, it's a movie. Don't worry about it. Okay. Should I go watch it? Uh, it has Sean Connery in it, I think. Oh, maybe. Okay. All right. Yes. Do you want to elaborate, please? Well, um, I don't, how do you pare it down? Well, I guess the question I have for you is once you have this mapped out, how what can you do with this information? How might it help you? Well, um, I mean, it, it's hard. It's a little hard for me because it, it helps you get clarity. Yes, that's correct. And clarity, clarity is important. And what is it giving you clarity on? Well, like you said, I, who is my, who's yeah. the one person who's the I main need person? Yep. Happy. And so, sometimes it's not who you think it is. Right. And the, the other thing that this will, so that's one really important thing. Uh, and, and the other thing this will, this technique will allow you to do is find out if everybody on the, on your team agrees, right? Because as you're putting it, uh, agrees with the power and the interest and availability and agrees with who the main stakeholder is. So that helps a lot. The other yeah. thing in terms of the main stakeholder is if you look and it's like, well, they have a lot of power, but they're really not interested in what we're doing. Now it's like, uh-oh, we have a problem. Is that really our main stakeholder? And then why, why are they not interested, right? Um, the other thing that you can do with this chart is it helps you figure out who you need to talk to, in what way, and how often, right? So the people that aren't very interested and available, you know, okay, so let we'll we'll plan to do a readout at the end, right, and invite them. But we're not going to invite them to all these sessions because they're just not that interested or available. But these people over here seem to be really interested. How can, could we could we involve them more, right? Um, so it just helps you make decisions about how to work with the stakeholders over time. The other thing it'll do is it'll help you raise a red flag now, early on. For instance, we have no one who has high power <laughs> on this list. So do we need to go find some other people who are going to care more about it? Or we have no one who has any time or interest. So that doesn't sound good, right? And so it'll just help you look at it and think about if you want to make some changes in, in the research you're doing and who you're sharing it with before you, you know, get all the way to the end of the project. So Guthrie, I shared a whole bunch of techniques um, there's a, there's a gazillion more, but you know, I only have so much time. Uh, but, uh, those are some of my favorite ones. And I really do encourage, uh, anyone who's listening, try some of these out, um, or try other ones from the book game storming or make up some of your own ways, but to, to be willing to experiment and, uh, I remember the first time I try, I decided to experiment with different collaboration techniques. I was quite nervous. It's like, oh, what if they think this is dumb and they don't like it and they don't want to do it? But I, I just charged ahead and I tried to charge ahead with a lot of confidence. And what I found was 
if I'm confident about what I'm doing, everybody else seemed very willing to just go along with it, right? So uh, just, you know, pick one that isn't, doesn't seem too weird or scary to you, try it out, and then uh, I think that'll, that'll help you, you know, be, be more brave and, and maybe do some other experimentation. Um, I think it can help. Uh, I, I think it helps with the work that we do to think about better ways to collaborate with other people. So there you have it. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, any, any final concluding thoughts? No, I think that's it. I mean, I welcome any questions or comments that people might have if they want to reach out to us and, uh, and ask us questions. We're, we're always around and, and love hearing from people. Fantastic. All right. Well, uh, then we'll, this, this will sort of wrap up this session and we will, uh, we'll see you on the next session. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Guthrie. Bye-bye.